electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Fast Money starts right now. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Adami, Dan Nathan, and technology permitting, Tim Seymour and Brian Kelly. Coming up on Fast, hedge fund legend Mike Novogratz says the market bottom is in. He'll tell us where he is spotting the next big investment opportunity. Plus, something just happened to Bitcoin that has only happened twice before. What it is and why it's a big deal for Bitcoin bulls. And later, chipping away at China. We'll tell you about a bold plan coming out of the White House that could reshape the entire tech landscape. But we, get, we begin with the most important chart for the markets, because obviously we would start there. That's what Dan Nathan is calling this stock. So, Dan, why don't you walk us through what this is and why it's so important to investors? Yeah, let's talk about J.P. Morgan. Obviously, this is a best of breed bank um, heading into the crisis. The stock was trading at an all time high. And, you know, I think there was a lot of investors out there in January who are signaling that this is a chart that's representative of the economy that we're in pre pandemic. And I just have to tell you, I mean, this thing has acted pretty horrible on the way down. It's down 35% um, on the year. And that is relative to the S&P 500. That's down less than 10% on the year. So the bounce off of the lows in March and JP Morgan was fairly anemic relative to the S&P 500. And what's important here is that investors seem to be very focused on the stocks that got us here pre-pandemic. That was mega cap tech. We know that it was the MAGA, the Microsoft, the Apple, the Google, and the Amazon. And they're just dragging the S&P higher. But it's the bank stocks that I think are really important to keep an eye on here. I think that they touch a lot of parts of the economy that are going to struggle over the next few quarters here. So JP Morgan breaking that uptrend that's been in place off the March lows. I think you really want to keep an eye on that. So we have Best of Breed Bank acting very poorly. Last week, we spent some time on Wells Fargo. Let's call it Worst of Breed Bank. Closed at a new 52-week multi-year low today. I just think the banks are telling you a lot more about what the economy is going to be like in the next few months than the mega cap tech, which we know that there were winners before, and they're clearly going to be the winners out of this thing. Hi, Guy. Uh, do you agree that this is the most Hi, important Mel. part in the markets? So I don't know. I don't know necessarily if I agree with that. But can since we have a few minutes, since Tim is in the abyss somewhere. So there's obviously a lot of time. And you know, I've been a fan of the Netflix. And recently, my family and I, they've they've gotten us into this. The Stranger Things. Are you familiar with that yes, show? Yes, I've, I've seen the whole Winona Ryder at all. Mm-hmm. Matthew Modine. Tremendously say, so why are you bring this up, Guy? Because bring it up for a very specific reason. Right now, you know, above the ground, everything looks great. I mean, incredible. The stock market's come back. But the banks right now are, you know, remember the, the, the down below or the underneath or whatever they call it on the Stranger Things? That's where the banks are. They're, they're the underneath right now. And they're telling a much different story than the rest of the world. And it's a really scary story. If you had told me when J.P. Morgan reported earnings back in April that the S&P 500 would continue on this move higher, uh, given that report, I'd say it's a $120 stock. And why? Because they said tangible book is $61. You know, that's a stock that's traded 2.4 times tangible book at one point. I would say two is a decent multiple. And here we are at 89. Citibank, by the way, uh-huh. is trading about 65% 
of tangible book. That is a devastating number. So I don't know if Dan's right in terms of being the most important chart, Mm -hmm. but I got to tell you something. It's a very important chart and people should be paying attention. So let's just be clear. I'm not sure my knowledge of the Stranger Things goes deep enough to carry out this metaphor through this conversation. But does this mean that you think what's going on in the underworld with the banks and their poor performance should be reflective of the markets or is some sort of indicator of where the markets should yeah. be heading. You know, I think too many people yeah, in Hawkins, listen, first Indiana first weren't guy, paying attention. And I think, oh, sorry, Dan. No, it's called the upside down guy. And the market's got this thing upside oh, down whatever, for a reason. Man. I just think it's, uh, listen, uh, right, right, right. The, the point that I'm trying to make here is that this is a name, this is a company that obviously touches a lot of different parts of the economy here in the U.S., but also the global economy. And I'd take it a step further. You know, again, European banks, the Eurostox Bank Index, the SX7E, trades horrible. It's less than 10% from its recent lows here. Go to the Japanese banks, the Topics Bank Index, again, also trades horrible. So I guess the point is, is that everybody's staring at the same stuff. They're staring at the mega cap tech. They're watching the narrowing of this rally as it gets to this really important, I'm not one of these chartists, this is maybe a Grasso thing, that Fibonacci retracement, 61.8% or something like that. And you're seeing the narrowing of this rally, but the the bank globally are telling you something differently. And then when you have a bank like JP Morgan, I think you want to pay attention. That's what I'm saying. That's why it's important. I get what you're saying about the global banks the same time, the U.S. banks are so much better capitalized than the European banks are out of the last crisis. I'm not sure if that's a fair comparison. I get the upside down world thing, though. And BK, I'm wondering, um, do you think that's a that's an indicator of things to come, a reckoning of sorts for this U.S. stock market? BK. Oh, you were asking me, you guys doing a live TV show here? <laughs> Thanks for joining us, BK. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Dialing in on, right the, now, on your huh? CompuServe or whatever you have. Go ahead. <laughs> so I, I heard a little bit about what, the, what you're, the, the banks that you're talking about, but here's the way that I look at it is that you're going to have negative rates here in the U.S. The bond market's already telling you that. So that's not great for the banks. Not only that, you're going to be having quite a bit of bankruptcies and non-payment of loans auto loans, credit cards, all of that, that's not a great environment for the bank. So the stock market, as we define at S&P 500 or Dow Jones, can go higher as long as there's people, as long as the Federal Reserve is buying investment grade bonds. But that doesn't mean that the underlying economy, which I think both of the gentlemen on the panel besides me were getting at, doesn't mean that the uh, underlying economy is that great. So Guy Adami, it is possible to have uh, MAGA go Hi. higher, but the banks continue to trade lower. So does that mean you just go with yes, it? Yes, absolutely. And I think, every, I think most people would agree. I, I'm not saying it's correct. I'm not saying that it should happen, but it's absolutely happening. Because once again, it's incredible the complacency that's found its way back into the market after you know, the market seemingly impervious to everything that's going on in the world. Look, again, I'll say this. You know, I understand what's happening. I understand money flows and what have you. But I don't think people are paying attention. And right now, the Nasdaq is more expensive on a valuation basis than it was when it was making all-time highs, as is the S&P 500, which may be okay when the Federal Reserve is basically throwing money away uh, willy-nilly. But quite frankly, it should scare a lot of people. So, you know, I agree with Dan and BK in terms of the banks and what they're saying. But it doesn't mean that some of these stocks... 
can't continue on their merry ride. And that, in fact, is, you know, I'll go back to it. It's Stranger Things. It's Hawkins, Indiana. It's Winona Ryder's resurgence. It's all those things wrapped up into one. Speaking of Stranger Things, Tim has joined us. So, Tim, do you want to weigh in on this conversation? (laughs) That's a fantastic segue. It's a good thing I was listening in because this could get pretty uncomfortable. So I know what you're talking about. And, and I think if you look at, say, the Russell 1000, if you look at the growth stocks, they're trading it uh, about 25 times and value stocks are trading it about 18 times. So, uh, again, you, you have seven turns, which have basically doubled uh, in terms of three and a half turns in the last three to six months. And I think this is going to continue. If you look at growth over value or uh, secular over cyclical or, you know, Main Street, you know, Electric Avenue, Eddie Grant, you know, that's digital. Um, And, you know, this is a case where why wouldn't these trends continue as uncomfortable as it is the crowding into MAGA? So it's it's hard to dispute banks. Uh, Dan's been right. His chart makes sense to me. Um, I do think that banks are being priced for more reserves. um, And the good news is I don't think that there's going to be equity dilution in banks in the world that I see right now. And and I think the market, uh, unfortunately, has to go with the credit unknown. Um, and that is going to be to punish banks. All right. Well, our next guest says the market bottom is in, but there's still a long road ahead. Let's bring in hedge fund legend Mike Novogratz. He's the founder and CEO of, of Galaxy Digital. Mike, great to have you with us. Thank you to be here. Um, quite a lot has changed in the 20-some days uh, since we last spoke. Um, number one, the elephant in the room, which is your mustache. Uh, is fantastic. Um, second of all, the last time we spoke, the S&P 500 was at 2736 and you're short at that time. We're now above 2900. So what's your take on, on the markets right now? Yeah, listen, I think we've been in a tug of war between liquidity on the one side and, you know, you can call it fundamentals or a really crappy economy on the other. And liquidity is winning. Um, and so it was not a great time to be short. Uh, those shorts don't last very long. Uh, and you've been fighting that tape. Listen, in the long run, like you go back to the 10 days from there, we were kind of a little higher. And so the market's only up 2 to 4% in, say, 30 days. But it's certainly grinding higher on liquidity. And the names that are going higher, right, the big caps, the story names, the NASDAQ, in some ways, you can't really put a cap on valuation because if we're in this inflationary paradigm that the Fed is creating with all the money printing, the same paradigm that's driving gold and Bitcoin prices higher, you know, NASDAQ becomes a store of value. Stocks become a store of value. And we don't really have a, a, a normal valuation metric. And so it's very dangerous to be short these things. The charts look like they're going higher. The cash flows look like they're going higher. And, you know, one of my favorite statistics of this is disposable income in America is going to be higher this year than it was last year because of all the stimulus. And that's a shocking statistic. Let's let's repeat that because that's that is shocking. The, so disposable income, right? You know, uh-huh. listen. If you were a if you were a, a low wage uh, earner working at a, a quick serve restaurant or at, at a big box retail, uh, your unemployment check right now is double your your current paycheck. Right, you're making twenty five dollars an hour plus the stimulus, and so there's actually in some way more cash flow available to people than there was pre. Pre-corona. Now that's not going to last forever, right? That that program cuts off in July, but right now there's there's so much liquidity it's driving price. So you can't fight the you can't fight the market. You can't fight the Fed. You can't fight all this liquidity. So you won't be short this market until sometime after July, basically. You know, I I, I had put spreads. They didn't work. 
Uh, I'm watching the market closely. And, you know, part certain segments, you know, banks can't go anywhere. You look at the high yield index, won't go anywhere. So credit because people are saying, hey, <laughs> people are going to pay their rents. They're not, you know, they're not showing up at restaurants. You know, the credit situation is going to be a mess and remain a mess for a long time. You know, we're not getting out of this easy. At best, we're going to have what I call a dirty opening or a messy opening. And because we can't get ourselves together on testing or contract tracing, it's just no one's making any progress there. Uh, even when we open, there's going to be tons of fear. And so you're not going to get the economy even close to what it used to be. You know, at one point we had this hope that there'd be the vaccine or you do a really aggressive testing regimen and get people feeling comfortable again. It, it ain't going to happen. And so now we're talking the summer through the summer. Some people aren't going back to work till January in their offices. And so we're at a whole new paradigm, which will be lower growth, messier opening, uh, bad politics. And so it's hard for me to get bullish in the stock market. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm looking for areas to, to, to pick my shorts. Uh, but the overall trend, too much liquidity. Okay, so uh, you have half of your book, which is sort of the macro trade in the markets, and you have half your book in, in the crypto side of things. And we're going to get to that after the break, the crypto side of things. But just to button up our market conversation, Mike, I mean, your position, your short position in the market is going to expire. I believe you tweeted on Friday. Your puts are going to expire on Friday. So what are you going to do with that um, that dry powder, so to speak? Or do you just sit there and wait? I mean, you know, are there tactical look, things that you're doing? I will probably still buy some put spreads because I like to have some exposure to a market. When it, if, if it when it finally breaks, it's a lot easier to sell weakness uh, if you already have some exposure. So I'll probably buy some more put spreads if I can find you know strikes that make sense to me. Um, you know, and listen, there's some names I go along. I think anything with a, uh, you know, Bojangles is a, a private company that used to be public that we own a big stake in. Uh, anything with a drive-thru is doing well. So quick service restaurants, uh, you know, interesting sales are up year on year in, in lots of those businesses. And so, you know, there's some names we like. Uh, I think longer term leisure will come back at one point. And so bottom, bottom fishing there, uh, but not making a big commitment in the stock market right yet. All right. Guy, you got a question? I do. Mike, mustache notwithstanding, I know you to be an extraordinarily bright person and sort of a study of, you know, one that studies human behavior. My question to you is this. You know, everybody talks about this pent up demand once we get through this uh, coronavirus. My question is, do you think people will fundamentally change? Can you rely on the U.S. consumer six, nine months from now when there's a vaccine the same way you could, let's say, December of last year? Listen, I think if we get an all clear, if there was a miracle vaccine in six months, behaviors will migrate back to what they used to be pretty quick. Uh, but I think we're a long way from that. You know, my, my, I used to be much more optimistic and I just see really difficulty, a real, a real difficult scenario in us opening in any kind of real way. Uh, and until we get people feeling safe, and it's funny, some people feel completely safe and others are petrified to go outside their house. And so you've got to actually get the majority of people, almost the, the super majority, feeling safe. And we're a long way from that. But I think if you have the miracle thing, I think behaviors will, will you know, people will take cruises, people will pack themselves in bars, uh, people will go to concerts uh, faster than you think. But that could be 12 months, 18 months away. 
All right, Mike, stick around. Uh, we're going to talk Bitcoin. Maybe we'll go crazy. We'll throw in a little Ethereum. Who knows? Uh, and something just happened to the cryptocurrency that has only happened twice before. We'll tell you what that is ahead. And later on, a reopening showdown, the big battle brewing between Elon Musk and the state of California. We'll break down what is at stake when Fast Money returns. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. Bitcoin falling today following the halving. And for those of you who don't know what it is, it's a technical event that reduces the number of Bitcoins rewarded to miners, in turn reducing the number of Bitcoins mined. Mike Novogratz is still with us. So what's your, what's your take on, on the event? It certainly seemed a little bit like a sell the news kind of event, at least initially. Yeah, a little bit. I, you know, I think uh, there was a lot of hype going into uh, the halving, right? We, we've come off from 4,500. So huge rally. A lot of retail participation. Uh, there's a great macro backdrop. We've, we've talked about ad infinitum of why crypto right now, and Bitcoin specifically, makes so much sense. And then you had the, note, the news that Paul Jones uh, had bought it and then bought it for his fund, which is, I think, really, really significant. And so you had a little bit of a retail frenzy uh, that got sold off. I would expect the market to hold here at 8,000, 8,500 and to start trading right back up. Uh, we're seeing at our shop just a huge increase in interest in, in, in Bitcoin and getting into crypto uh, from high net worth individuals, from funds. Uh, you know, crypto is not easy to buy. It takes a while to get set to buy it. If it was easy to buy, it would be much higher. And so it doesn't happen overnight, but it feels like a herd is on its way, finally. Uh, you know, I, I coined that phrase a long time ago, and uh, I'd been waiting and waiting for the institutional side. And mm-hmm. I think this, this Tudor news is very big news because in some ways, it takes the career risk of looking dumb out of out of buying Bitcoin. It credentializes it as, as a macro weapon. You know, it might or might not work, but you're not. People aren't going to say, "Oh, you were a fool to do that." You know, that's 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 tulips. No, it's now seen as a legitimate store of value, uh, and I think it'll allow other hedge funds to participate as well. Yeah, you don't want to be the first guy. That's for sure. BK, you got a question for Novo? Uh, yeah, I want to know if it, if uh, Bitcoin goes to 50000 does he grow the mustache out or does he shave it off? That's the real question. <laughs> this was a Corona mustache. And, you know, I actually t- tweeted before, I think, like, this might be my last appearance because I'm just so sick of this damn quarantine. Uh, maybe if I take it off, I'll end the quarantine. I do have a, um, do have a real uh, question for you, Mike. So, so I'm curious. We've seen in the past with these halvings, you see a sell-off 30 to 60 days. Are we are you thinking are you positioned that way where we we have a sell off for 30 days and then the real rally comes? Or do you think that's just that's the last two times and we're not going to have it again? No, I laughed. I, I had a, had a really a re, original strategy of kind of selling into the happening and then buying the buying the pullback. But we have seen so much activity that I didn't sell a damn thing. Uh, you know, uh, I put a hodl sign, you know, hold on for your life sign, which is a, a crypto term where, you know, the real core crypto guys never sell. Um, I, I literally really think that the uh, the the movement we're seeing. Listen, the happening comes almost at a perfect time. If you think about this ma- macro bra- backdrop of quantitative easing on top of quantitative easing on top of quantitative easing, 
the happening is quantitative tightening. And so, you, you know, it, it's like an exclamation point on the macro story of why scarcity, why a scarce asset like Bitcoin should go higher. And so I haven't sold. I think, you know, I missed the sell off. And I think you're going to see the thing base here. And, and we will we will take out 10,000. You know, we will go to 20,000 by the end of the year. I feel real confident about it. Uh-oh. Did I get cut off? No, Mike, you're still here. We were going to have Tim Seymour jump in with a question, but there's something wrong with his audio. We've been, I mean, it's like gremlins here, Mike, with all these remotes <laughs> that we're trying to work on. Um, I wanted to ask you in terms of, uh, you know, Ethereum contracts started trading today, and, and I'm wondering if you are in that trade at all and what you see for some of the other cryptocurrencies aside from Bitcoin. Listen, I have a, a smaller position in Ethereum, and I think, you know, Bitcoin has this lane of store of value, and because of it, it's almost a finished product. There's nothing that has to happen for Bitcoin to get better. Uh, the other projects, Ethereum being the, the most promising and, and second biggest, really continue to need to develop the, the underlying technology so it's used more often. Right? Ethereum is right now used for decentralized finance. Mm -hmm. There's about a little less than a billion dollars of DeFi or $600 million of DeFi on Ethereum. And all the stable coins have moved over there. So there's eight, eight, nine billion dollars of stable coins. And so that's a big deal. Uh, as the Ethereum project grows, I think the value will go up. But I don't think it's today's news. I think it's it will get dragged along with Bitcoin, uh, but it won't accelerate up on its own uh, probably for a year or two until it really gets uh, users on the platform. And that will get valued more like Facebook. It'll be a social network. It'll be a network effect. Hmm. The more programmers, the more coders, the more right. businesses built on it, the value will go up. Okay. Um, one quick question for the traders before I let you go, Mike. Show of hands, who wants Mike to shave his mustache off? <laughs> Show of hands. No. Wow. No takers, Mike. You're going to keep that thing. Apparently, you're going to keep it. <laughs> My Gordon Liddy look. <laughs> Great to speak with you. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks so much. Mike Novogratz. Dan Nathan, what's your trade out of this? Yeah, I mean, listen, that, that level of confidence, I mean, these guys have some history about how the uh, Bitcoin is traded after um, the, ha the past happenings, and he seems pretty convicted that it's taking 10,000. I mean, listen, you know, um, it wasn't particularly uncorrelated to a lot of other risk assets when things were selling off um, earlier this year. Um, so you'd really have to buy into the long-term case for this thing rather than a short-term hedge, in my, position, uh, right. in my opinion. Coming up, the United States of chips. The big plan getting kicked around the White House that could have a huge impact on the entire tech landscape. And later, shares of AutoNation zooming higher today. What the company's CEO said about the future that's got investors all revved up. Fast Money's back in two. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Edinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Fast Money. We're following a developing story out of the White House. The Trump administration reportedly in talks to some of the world's biggest semiconductor companies to build new chip factories here in the United States. Let's get to Kayla Tashi with more details. Kayla. 
Melissa, these talks have been going on between the federal government and these tech companies for several years, predating the Trump administration. But they've taken on new urgency because of the supply chain disruptions that have been wrought by the coronavirus. The Wall Street Journal reporting that Intel has joined talks with the federal government and Taiwan semiconductors to build microchip foundries here in the U.S. with Intel CEO Bob Swan personally writing a letter to the Pentagon, which has reached Capitol Hill, saying that that company has the capability to do this here. Taiwan Semiconductor has said there's been no decision yet. But the key question is how the government can incentivize companies to do this business here, where it's much more expensive to do it. In October, when the New York Times reported on some of these efforts, the chairman of Taiwan Semiconductor said it is all up to when we can close the cost gap. Now, to be sure, this is just one silo that the National Security Council has opened uh, to secure products related to national security, medical supplies, defense equipment, pharmaceuticals, and yes, semiconductors. To do this in 2017, a council advising President Obama then suggested, Melissa, that the government set up a sort of venture capital fund to co-invest alongside these companies to offset some of these costs. That's something that was again floated by the Semiconductor Industry Association, but the conversation continues. All right. Kayla, thank you. Kayla Tausche. Let's bring in Jeffrey's tech specialist, Jared Weisfeld. Jared, great to have you with us. Hey, Melissa, how are you? Thanks let, for having me. Um, you know, from Intel's perspective, let's say, since Bob Swan is the one who wrote that letter, uh, why do you want to be invested in by the U.S. government? Is it, I mean, I would think that it has its pluses and minuses. So just taking a step back, I think the, the bigger issue is that the entire semiconductor supply chain, and I think this is what the Department of Defense and this is what the administration is focused on, there's basically a single point of failure in the system right now because there's an over-reliance on Taiwan Semiconductor based in Taiwan, mm -hmm. whereby if you think of some of the U.S.'s largest manufacturers of chips, whether it's Xilinx or NVIDIA or AMD, they leverage Taiwan Semiconductor out in, out in Taiwan. So to the extent that anything were to ever happen from a supply chain disruption perspective, it certainly brings, brings risk to the table. And I think all of that was or has been accelerated in the context of national security when you look at some of the recent developments that have occurred and the recent tensions between the U.S. and China. I think using national security as a catalyst certainly makes a lot of sense to start thinking about bringing some of these plants back here in the U.S. But obviously, I mean, as the Semiconductor Industry Association pointed out, it's all about the costs, right? I mean, they're, they're over in Asia for a reason. So how can, how can the government actually close that cost gap, or is this going to result in inflationary pressure on a lot of the consumer products that we use with the chips inside them? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And I think as per the SIA comments, which in the SIA is the Industry Association that represents some of the semiconductor capital equipment manufacturers, it's effectively cost prohibitive without incremental tax incentives. So I think to the extent that incentives were put in place, it could make a lot of sense. But I would, I would also just take a step back. I think that a lot of what you're reading here is part of a broader chess move. If you just rewind back a week ago, the Department of Commerce put in surprise export restrictions to certain semiconductor manufacturers that are uh, exporting to the China region. So I think when you think about what's going on here, the U.S. government is looking to crack down on China and Huawei in a more meaningful way and bring supply out of the region. And I think all of this is, is tied into, into that general theme. Tim, you got a question? Yeah, I guess I guess my question is ultimately, does the U.S. stand alone on this? Is this U.S. China or is this uh, the world against China and Huawei? Um, and are we fighting the world's battle here? 
I think it's a, it's a great question, Tim. I mean, I think uh, two, two, two things I, w- I would point out. From a, from a U.S. perspective, I think we are, as a country, probably overly reliant, uh, more so on the Asian supply chain than others, just given when you think about Silicon Valley and the likes of some of the larger manufacturers from a semiconductor perspective that I brought up earlier, whether it's NVIDIA, AMD, because Silicon Valley is such a powerhouse of the U.S. and so much of the technology is coming out of the Asian region, it's certainly uh, very U.S.-specific. But where I do think there's a common ground is if you think about just the global um, supply chain and just other countries' motives when they think about Huawei, there's, you know, right now I think the U.K. is a great example where there's, you know, this goes back up to the, the prime minister level where uh, prime minister of UK has basically gotten into the middle of a, of a fight across both sides of the aisle because there is a lot of disagreement on what's going to happen with Huawei infrastructure in that country. The U.S. has been putting a lot of pressure on many countries across the planet to effectively drop Huawei out of, out of their architecture. So I think this goes back to the other point that I was making earlier that I do think that all roads lead to China and Huawei in terms of how the U.S. administration is is thinking about pursuing their goals. And when you think about potential export uh, restrictions and uh, what we're doing to effectively try and cut off Huawei, if you remember about a year and a half ago, we added Huawei to the Department of Commerce, added Huawei to the entity list of, of the country, which effectively prohibited the direct shipment of semiconductors to that company. But despite that, Huawei's still been producing goods. So I think a lot of this is going back to uh, national, national security policy at the aim of trying to choke off Huawei. Dan, you got a question? Yeah. Hey, Jared, um, is it just semiconductors or do you have to reorient the entire smartphone server and PC supply chain more towards the United States? Because ultimately these things need to be streamlined the way they have been in Taiwan and China. And uh, I think that's a, that's a great question, Dan. I mean, so if you take a, take, take a step back, uh, about a week and a half ago, in a surprise move, the Department of Commerce restricted export of many goods on what they call the commerce control list. And that list is exhaustive in terms of um, items that can get shipped to the Chinese military and non-military uses. And it's very exhaustive, everything from you know, the most basic level semiconductor to the most advanced. And it could be as enforceable as... Um, as, the Chinese, as the U.S. government wants it to be. And I think it just goes back to the heart of you know, why these plants were built in China to begin with and in the Taiwan region is because the entire supply chain is over there. So um, I think that when you think about the supply chains that are built out in Asia and bringing them back here to the U.S., it's very complicated. You know, as a, as a recent example, you know, if you think about in, in the context of the trade war that's been going on, there's been a ton of movement to try and get supply chains built up in, in India and Vietnam, but the labor wasn't available. And I think you're going to have similar concepts uh, back here in the States when you think about the ability to move out these supply chains. And, it, and to your point, it's, it's not just about uh, semiconductors. It's about the entire ecosystem that exists outside the U.S. So I right. think the, the bigger push to bring the ecosystem back here to the U.S. is certainly a complex one, and, uh, and it's going to take quite some time. Jared, great to speak with you. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Melissa. Jared Weisfeld of Jeffries. Guy Adami, putting aside what's good for the country, but just thinking about it from a stock perspective, if you heard the news that Intel was going to go in uh, building a new foundry in the United States, maybe in Texas or somewhere, alongside the U.S. government, is that a good thing for Intel or a bad thing? And what do you think that ultimately means for that whole, I mean, that ecosystem would have to, a big chunk of that would have to move to the United States as well. 
Yeah, maybe that's a great. Maybe the knee jerk is higher on the stock, but I think in terms of the broader implications, I think it's potentially very negative, not only for Intel but for our markets. I think people are underestimating. Listen, maybe it's the hundred percent right thing to do to bring all the manufacturing back to the United States. I'm not an economist. I didn't take uh, political science in college. Maybe it's the right thing to do, but there is a cost associated with that. And I think the market is looking past this in a way that it shouldn't. I think this is far more serious in terms of U.S.-China relations than the whole trade negotiations were 18 or so months ago. And for whatever reason, the market is discounting it. I don't think the market should. I think this is some pretty scary rhetoric that's going on right now. All right. Coming up. Deal or no deal? We'll tell you what sent shares of AMC rocketing higher today and later. PNC selling its investment in BlackRock. We'll get our traders' take on this news when we come right back. Welcome back to Fast Money. PNC Financial exiting its investment in BlackRock. The regional bank owns about 20% of the world's largest money manager and will sell its full stake in a secondary stock offering. PNC Financial first invested $240 million in BlackRock back in 1995. Meantime, shares of AMC topping the tape today. The stock surging on a report that Amazon is considering buying the movie theater operator. Neither side has confirmed or denied that reporting. So that got us thinking, should Amazon even buy AMC or maybe it should buy something else altogether? Um, in another lifetime on this show, we might play something like the dating game, I think. This is what we used to do. Um, but, you know, given the remote uh, stuff happening, uh, Tim, what would you say in terms of what Amazon should pair up with? Well, this this story sounds, looks uh, a lot like the Whole Foods story, doesn't it? I mean, it, it, to me, it, it, going after a beleaguered franchise that at one point was kind of the leader in their industry, certainly has a, a fantastic retail presence, uh, has a brand, um, and you're getting it at a fraction of where it was trading you know, a couple of years ago, and maybe for good reason. Um, this is ultimately about distribution. This is ultimately about logistics. And, and some of the same principles apply, whether this you know, acquisition will happen um, you know, and at what price. Um, I, I think this is a very similar strategy in looking at what they're doing in you know, essentially in entertainment and media. That's funny that you bring up Whole Foods because it's almost the 30-year anniversary of Amazon's purchase of Whole Foods. But that seems to, I mean, obviously we're seeing those, uh, that purchase bear fruit today in this pandemic world. I would say that uh, it's more akin to Amazon having, you know, potentially buying a Barnes & Noble back in the day. It didn't need Barnes & Noble. And I'm not sure it would need an AMC for distribution if streaming is the way of the future, BK. I mean... I don't know where you think Amazon should go if they are, in, the, in fact, in the market for anything. Yeah, so I actually really like this deal. I mean, first of all, because really? you're getting this asset at a great price. So your risk reward on this is very low. I do think three years, five years down the line, people are going to end up going back to movie theaters. Perhaps Amazon can create some kind of an experience. Not everybody's going to stream all the time. They're in streaming. I get it. They can now use this as distribution. So I actually think Amazon should. That's the advantage of a company like Amazon having that, that uh, the access to capital in an environment like this. They can take a three to five year view. So I like it for Amazon. Dan, what do you say? Once upon a time, Dan, you had said that Amazon should buy Kohl's. 
Yeah, I, listen, I, I like the idea of the barbell approach for Amazon with uh, bricks-and-mortar retail. I don't really see any reason uh, for, for AMC. It's a rounding error. It would be, to me, nothing more than a hassle. But if Jeff Bezos is interested, I'm sure he'll make it work. Um, I think it would make a lot more sense if Amazon were to buy, like, a Pinterest, for instance. I just think that if you think about how they can uh, really broaden out, they don't really have any social applications whatsoever, but it would be a great tab on Amazon. I'm sure there's a lot of things they could do with Prime, but get their Prime members pinning a lot of different things and just make that subscription that much stickier. So to me, that makes a lot of sense. And Ben Silverman, the CEO, founder of Pinterest, would make a very, very solid senior executive um, and maybe... I don't know. Maybe he'd be groomed to, to, to take over more than just that under Jeff Bezos. What do you think of that combination, Guy, given you're probably the only member of the panel that has a, a Pinterest page? Yeah. I'm, no, I know I'm the only member of the panel. <laughs> and I was an early adopter to Pinterest, if you recall. And I was, you know, I was going to say that Dan beat me to the punch. Good for Dan. But he's 100 percent right. Pinterest makes sense on a number of different levels for a company like Amazon. And AMC is a rounding error. I mean, the risk reward if the AMC at this point is, is, is it's amazing for Amazon. We're talking about an AMC, which probably has a market cap of less than 700 million or so dollars right here. So, you know, if it works, it's great. And if it doesn't, nobody remember in five years. So that that's the position that Amazon finds themselves in. Good for Jeff Bezos. Bad for the rest of the world and the folks in Hawkins, Indiana. Once again, I go back. It's a Stranger Things show, Mel. I'm telling you, Amazon's the vine crawling underneath the real world. I mean, it's just incredible what goes on here. I'm going to have to brush up my Stranger Things uh, trivia. Coming up, Tesla sales sure. numbers <laughs> plunging in China, but that's not the only challenge facing the electric car maker. We will tell you about the big battle brewing between Elon Musk and the state of California. And later, Cisco gearing up for earnings this week while options traders are betting on a big breakout when it reports. More Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Tesla dropping today. The company reporting a 64% drop in Model 3 sales in China last month. That's not all. The company's CEO, Elon Musk, is now embroiled in a big legal battle with the state of California. Phil LeBeau is in Chicago with all the details. Phil. Hey, Melissa, when's the last time you saw a CEO getting arrested? I mean, like arrested in handcuffs and carried out somewhere. Like Carlos well, that could Ghosn? happen this afternoon. Yeah, well, Carlos Ghosn, that was a good point. Yes, uh, it could happen this afternoon. And we say that because as Tesla, as you take a look at shares, the latest going into today was that they sued Alameda County's health department saying, look, we want to restart production. Alameda County said, we're working with Tesla, but they're just not quite there yet. Tesla said, we've got protocols in place. And even after talking with the governor today, Elon Musk thought that, yeah, we can get production started. Alameda County says, uh-uh. So Tesla CEO Elon Musk tweeted out this afternoon, Tesla is restarting production today against Alameda County rules. I will be on the line with everyone else. If anyone is arrested... I ask that it only be me. It's a little unclear what's happened so far since he tweeted this. This was about, I'd say, an hour ago. All of this brings up the question, what's Tesla's future? In terms of in California, whether it's production, whether it's the headquarters, which are in Palo Alto and not far from Fremont, they are going to announce a new U.S. plant likely in the next one to three months. And the speculation is that it's likely going to be in the Midwest, perhaps in the South, Texas is a popular uh, location that a lot of people talk about. And Elon Musk even referenced the fact that they could move out some of their headquarters and other operations to either Nevada or to Texas. So as you take a look at shares of Tesla, 
It'll be interesting to see what happens this afternoon when they restart production at the plant in Fremont. And again, this is against the county health department's orders. So the question becomes, does the county health department go to the sheriff and say, come on, get him in here. You know, he's going against our rules. Or do they work out some kind of an agreement this afternoon? And one way or the other, Tesla says it is restarting production. Hmm. Uh, We need somebody with a police scanner in Palo Alto to to keep on top of this for us in case there are cars descending upon headquarters. That should be quite Have have you seen the pictures? Melissa, if you look at the pictures, I mean, it's clear. It's a full parking lot. And if you've ever been out to that Fremont plant, look, they're bursting at the seams as it is. It's not like it's an empty parking lot in a mall and you can park in the back and walk to the front. I mean, it is packed all the time. And that's the way it looked today. Uh, a number of the media pictures that were taken there today. So it's clear there are a number of employees who are there, and they intend to start up production. All right, Phil. Thank you. Phil LeBeau. You bet. Keeping busy with Elon Musk. Even just Elon Musk. I mean, that's like a whole little mini economy in terms of the news cycle. All right, so this begs a bigger question in terms of states and their ability to lure businesses, right? Because if California, if this is the only auto manufacturing plant in California and they lose it, I mean, other states will want to woo Elon Musk to go there and California will probably lose its reputation as being hospitable to the auto industry guy. Yeah, no question about it. So it's not great for California, but everything seems to turn up Roses for Tesla. And, you know, I've said a couple times now, many times over the last six, seven months, I just clearly don't understand Tesla. And then people tweet to me, well, why don't you read up about it? And I say to them this, I read 100 years of solitude <laughs> three times in college, and I didn't understand it any of the three times with respect to Mr. Marquez, Garcia Marquez. So I don't know what to tell you. I'm trying to understand it. I don't. So in terms of the stock, I have nothing smart to tell you right here, Melms, unfortunately. Dan Nathan. <laughs> I mean, listen, you know, we'd love to say the guy is just just a nuisance, but his board doesn't seem to care um, and and shareholders don't seem to care. He talks the stock down. It goes down a little bit, but it's at eight hundred dollars. It's up 100 percent of the year. No one cares. I guess the the main point that I would make is that he is going to be first in, first out. I I give him credit on that regard. Um, And just one last point. I suspect that he's got some coverage from Trump. I I would think that Trump is kind of egging him on a little bit. So at the end of the day, he's he's negotiating with his company's future um, with the state of California. And I suspect he stays in California and I suspect he gets his way. I mean, the Treasury Secretary and CNBC earlier today basically sounded like he would be in support of Elon Musk in terms of opening. He said, I urge states to get their acts together in order to allow businesses to open. Um, So that's a good point there. Coming up, options traders are betting on a big bump for Cisco when the company reports this week. We'll tell you just how high they see the stock soaring. And speaking of earnings, AutoNation revving up after an earnings beat. Is this a bright spot for autos? We will break it down right after this break. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out Cisco shares gaining momentum as the networking giant gears up for earnings on Wednesday. Over in the options market, the bulls are betting those results could be a key to a run higher. Mike has got the action. Mike. Hi, Melissa. So the options market right now is implying a move of about 6.4% after Cisco reports earnings. That's marginally higher than the 5.2% that the company has averaged over the last eight reported quarters. 
Bullish bets outpaced bearish ones considerably on more than four times the average daily call volume. And the opening activity that caught my eye was the July 45 calls. Opening buyers were paying a little over $1.60 for those. And they're obviously making a bullish bet that the stock is going to rise above that $45 strike price by July expiration. So looking out a little further than earnings, that means that the stock would have to rise 7.5% just for those to break even. So we can assume that the buyers of those calls are actually betting that Cisco could rise considerably more than even that. All right. Thanks for that, Mike. Mike Coe, for more Options Action, be sure to tune into the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Coming up, what AutoNation CEO said about the future that kicked the stock into high gear today. The details when we return. We've got a huge lineup on CNBC tonight. It all kicks off at the top of the hour with Mad Money. Jim is sitting down with the CEOs of Live Nation, Upwork, and AEP to discuss how they are preparing for the road ahead. Then join host Tina Fey for a virtual benefit program, Rise Up New York, to support the city and the state hardest hit by the coronavirus pandemic. The telethon gets underway at 7 p.m. Eastern. And later, be sure to catch a new CNBC documentary, DNA Testing, The Promise and the Peril. Scott Wapner goes inside the remarkable world of consumer genetic testing. That airs tonight at 10 p.m. Eastern time right here on CNBC. Moving on, check out shares of Auto Nation. That stock taking off today after the auto retailer posted a surprise earnings beat. Shares jumping nearly 7% at the highs of the session after the company's CEO said consumer demand for the auto industry is beginning to pick back up. So, BK, you're a close follower um, of AN. What's your take? Yeah, I thought this was really interesting what Mike Jackson, the CEO, had to say because this is really the heart of the American economy. And what I think is happening here is maybe we're picking up on a trend where people are going to be using Uber and Lyft less and they're actually buying a car. They feel safer in that car. And there's a trend to move away from dense cities out to the suburbs and rural. So actually the auto industry may not be as bad as people feared in the past based on this commentary. Dan, Nathan, what's your I mean, do you think that that trend would stay or is that just a fleeting thing? Well, listen, you know, that was the, the pitch for Lyft and Uber over the last few years, right, that, that cars just don't get used 90 percent of the time. And I think when you listen to Mike Jackson today, what he's saying is, is that their customers are telling him personal safety, personal space. That's important. You're also living in a world where people were not going to be flying commercial. They want to drive on vacation. They're going to be there's going to be pent up demand to get out. So this is the sort of green shoot that you should be looking for and try to figure out how to extrapolate it to other stories in the market. AutoNation seems like a cheap stock on 2021 numbers to me. All right. It is time now for the final trade. Let us go around the horn. Brian Kelly. You know, Dan said, BK doesn't like him. I mean, sell him and sell him again. Tim Seymour. Big discussion on semis. Infrastructure, build them there, build them here. Taiwan Semi is arguably the white label manufacturer for the world. And right now, semis have been outperforming. And I think this is the name you want to own. Dan Nathan, who, by the way, was the one who recommended Stranger Things to me originally when the first season was out. Yeah, years ago. Um, No, so Pinterest, Mel, we talked about it. You know, listen, the Amazon thing, that's pie in the sky. This is a stock that I think you start picking at, um, and I think it's one that works in the back half of the year. Guy Dami. I'm telling you, this Stranger Things, it's going to catch on. You know what else is catching on there, Melms? Bristol Myers, BMY. That sucker's been going higher. All right. Thanks, everybody, for watching Fast. We'll see you back here tomorrow at 5. Meantime, Mad Money with Jim Cramer in a very big show starts right now.
CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.